Well, good morning, church. Good morning, good morning. Happy Thanksgiving Eve weekend. We'll go with that. But if you've got your Bibles, if you could go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a book that Paul wrote to a church that was planted. Uh, and we're in a series called The Burden of 79. And if you're just joining us or if you've uh, been away from home, if you're college and you're back and you're visiting, it's awesome to have you here. Um, but we've been going through a series where we've been talking through the fact that back in 1979, you got these two guys, Dick Seavers and Vernon Johnson, and, and they wanted to plant a church in this town. And they wanted to have a church that, that would proclaim God's word and proclaim the gospel for God's glory and the good of the people of town. That was their goal. And even though they had radical backdrops that were totally different, the thing that they had in common was Jesus. And, and so one of the things that they had to do is figure out, well, what do we believe? I mean, we need to, we need to figure out what we believe as a church, because Vernon Johnson was coming from a, a Lutheran backdrop, and Dick Seavers was coming from like an independent Baptist backdrop, and those two usually don't marry well together. But, uh, but the, all of a sudden, these guys had this common passion. And so, one, so we're going through a series where we're figuring out what is it that we believe and why? Why do we believe this? What does Scripture have to say about it? And this morning, we're going to be talking about the whole reality of baptism and what Scripture has to speak into regarding that doctrine. And the, one of the key places in Scripture is actually in this letter. Paul was not a part of the Last Supper, which our communion services are based off of. He wasn't there. He wasn't one of the, the disciples in that room. He was someone who received every bit of information that he had regarding that moment from Christ himself. And so he's talking to a church and saying, listen, I'm passing on to you stuff that I got straight from Jesus, and this is something that I need you to understand. This is not something that's just an extracurricular part of Christianity. This is pivotal, and it's central, and it brings us right back to center ourselves on Christ. And so if you could stand with me as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to go, actually, I'm going to bump it back a verse to verse 23, and I'm going to read a couple verses past 25 to get the context of what Paul is saying. Because it's both an encouragement and also a sober reminder to take this incredibly seriously. This is what he says. For I received from the Lord, he's talking about Jesus there, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Paul's sober reminder there and, and sober wake-up call to the church was both um, encouraging them into something that he knew was central to our faith, but it was also the reality that this is something that we need to enter into remembering what this is all about. To be able to answer the question, why do we do this? Why do we take communion? Why is this something that, again, 2,000 years after these guys initially did this, is this something, why is this still a thing? Why don't we simply just remind ourselves what we believe in our songs and in the, in the, in the scripture? Why do we have to take communion? And why are we so different about communion? Because every stripe of Christianity seems like they've got a different take on, on this 
Supper, this Eucharist, this Mass, this Lord's Supper. And so we're going to be answering that question by, again, going back to our articles of faith. Um, the thing that, that is something that as a church we believe and we, we embrace is, as what Scripture has to say. This is our best shot at answering th- that question from Scripture itself. And so uh, the, if, we're, if you're following along in your notes, you'll see at the beginning of the article say this. We believe that, how many believers? All believers. Like not just the good ones. We believe that who? All believers are welcome to share in the Lord's Supper, which sounds way too loosey-goosey. That's like way too open-ended. Like there's believers that seriously, you're letting that believer, all believers are welcome to share in the Lord's Supper. Now again, Paul's admonition is to enter in soberly. And, and, and his admonition is that this all believers lets us know something. This is for Christians. This is a gathering of a forever family. Why do we take communion? To gather as a forever family. We are recognizing that those who are involved in taking the bread and the cup and proclaiming Christ's death until he returns are doing so as a family. That this is exclusive to them. Now, the church that you grew up in might have done something where they, what they would call is guarding the table. And, and every church handles that differently, but some churches guard the table of the Lord's Supper by saying, only people that are members of this church who've gone through confirmation within this church system are allowed to eat bread, the bread in the cup. My dad's church, he, he's a, um, a, a pastor at a Lutheran church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And here's the deal. I go out there and I can worship alongside them. They'll welcome me in. They'll smile. They'll shake my hand. When it comes to communion, guess what? I'm not allowed to have communion at that church. And I totally want to pull like the pastor card. Do you know who I am? You don't? Well, I'm a pastor. And I, and, but even if I did that, if I, you know, if I said I'm a really, really good pastor and I really, really believe in grace and God's word and I love Martin Luther, they'd say, great, join our class, go through the process of confirmation and then we will allow you to do this. And honestly, as off-putting as that may feel, I get it. That's actually kind of a neat thing that they take, that that's something they want to protect because they want to make sure, as Paul said, people aren't entering into this in an unworthy manner. So why, why do we, what do we do at NBC? We say that this is something, this, this, this ritual, this, this Lord's Supper is something that all believers in Christ are welcome to. That means that if you grew up in a Lutheran church or a Catholic church or a Presbyterian church or no church or you grew up in a Buddhist setting or an atheistic setting and all of a sudden you came to a point where you realize that Jesus Christ is in fact the only sufficiency for your forgiveness, your redemption, your salvation. That it's not your works, it's not your deeds, it's not how many spiritual hoops you can jump through, but it's Jesus' finished work on the cross that saves you. This table is open up to you exclusively to those who can affirm that. It's kind of like this. When I think of communion, I think of it being kind of like a funeral, kind of like a wedding, and kind of like a family reunion, all happening simultaneously. And this is why. It's kind of like a funeral because we're not like having a birthday party. This is memorializing Christ's death. Remember Paul's word. We're proclaiming not just the resurrection. We're proclaiming his what? Death. His death until he returns. And so this is, a, this is like a funeral. It, it's, it's something where, where we're memorializing that Christ didn't simply wave a wand and say, listen, I love you all, you're all forgiven. He died. A brutal, tragic, unfair, unjust death. He died. When we come into communion, we're remembering that. We're proclaiming that he went to that length for you and for me. 
Communion is kind of like a funeral, but it's also like a wedding because a wedding is a celebration of a new thing. This is a new relationship. A new covenant has been established between this husband and this wife. It's the beginning of a new story, a new journey. And, and the thing that we're celebrating in this is that Jesus didn't stay dead. It would be a completely different experience if Jesus had stayed dead. But because he is God, he rose from the grave. And he showed us that his power is not only over sin, but of, over death as well. And so when we're participating in this, we have the celebration of new start, new life, new journey founded in Jesus. It's kind of like a funeral. It's kind of like a wedding. And communion is kind of like a family reunion. Because again, all who participate in communion are connected to each other. And, and I don't know if you've ever gone to a family reunion, but part of the experience is, whoa, I am related to some weird people. And you look around and you realize we are so different. They don't understand. But, but we are all united by these really goofy looking t-shirts. Why? Because it's either by your blood or because you were, you were an, you're an in-law. In-laws are brought in too. Because look, you guys share something in common. The patriarch and the matriarch of this family. These people are, are the people that have brought us all together. If it weren't for them, we wouldn't be gathering together. But we're acknowledging the fact that we are not individuals in this space. That in this space, we're acknowledging that we're a part of a bigger family. Which is why when we take communion, when we take the Lord's Supper, it's not something where we hand you a doggy bag with a little bit of bread and a cup and say, peace, enjoy. Have good, have, find some quiet time in your house alone by yourself to take communion. No, we gather as a forever family. These people, this diverse, goofy bunch of people with different baggages and different, they look different, they're from different households. This group of people actually have literally more in common than what divides them. They are, they, what unites them is stronger than what divides them because what unites them is Jesus, is God. And because of that, we, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we're acknowledging that we are not just an individual. We're not alone. That we're part of this family. Now, each one of these, a funeral, a wedding, and a family reunion, are all invitation-based events. It would be super weird if you showed up to a funeral for someone you had no clue and you didn't have, know anyone in the room, but you just decided to go to the funeral. It's weird. That's an invitation-based event. People in that room have a connection to the person who's passed away. It's less weird, but, but, but still awkward if you go up to a wedding where you don't know the people. You don't know anyone there, but you're just like, you know what? There's going to be some food and partying after this, and I'm ready for that. That's an invitation-based event. A family reunion. Why would you put yourself through that? The t-shirts aren't that good. And so the, honestly, each one of these are invitation-based events. They're exclusive because each one of these events are affirming that we have someone in common that has brought us all into this space. That's what we're saying in communion. We're different, but we're united together in Christ. We're united. It's the gathering of this forever family. And not only that, it's actually, if we continue on, we see that we believe that all believers are welcome. And by the way, that's if you're five years old or 95 years old. But parents, here's the thing. If your, chi your child can, should only be participating in this if they understand what they're doing. Again, Paul says that we should be coming into this soberly. So if your child understands that their sins have been forgiven by Jesus, that, that the bread represents his body and the cup represents his blood, that's something that then there are under your guidance and your supervision and your leadership, able to participate in. It's not snack time, though. It's not that great of a snack. 
It's more important to that. It's sacred. It's significant. So you're the one who really needs to be shepherding your child in that situation, but it's open to all believers. All believers are welcome to share in whose supper? The Lord's Supper. This is not about us. As much as it is taking place with all of us gathered, it's not about us gathered. It's about Jesus. He is the center. That's actually the beauty of communion, of Lord's Supper, is that the reason that we take communion is to recenter ourselves on Christ. This is a recentering experience where no matter what's taken place leading up to this, you recognize that I need to evaluate my soul, my heart, my relationship with Jesus. That communion is like renewing your vows. It's like coming back to the table and remembering the fact that we have a relationship here that's gone cold or distant, or, or I've, I need to confess things to God that I've been holding on to. And this is something where, where, honestly, if we look at it, Jesus is the center of the Lord's Supper, and he's getting us back on track to center ourselves on him through the Lord's Supper. See, the disciples, when, when, in the last supper with Jesus, they rightfully did not think, oh, I know what we're doing. We're doing the first communion. This is going to be done for thousands of years. They did not think that. They rightfully thought they were experiencing what they experienced since they were kids, a Passover meal. And yet, Jesus commandeers this ancient ritual. Jesus steps into it in a, in a new way. He inserts himself into the ancient ritual celebrating the Hebrews' exodus and liberation from ethnic bondage by God's own hand by letting him know that there's going to be a greater liberation of sin's bondage by God's own son that Jesus was communicating to them this exodus that he's authoring is going to be a better exodus, that he's going to be a better Moses, and the promised land he's going to be leading us into is better yet. Jesus is inserting and commandeering this ancient ritual to center everyone who follows him from that point on, to, that just like the people remembered Moses' works in the Passover, all those years after that Passover actually took place, people would recall the work of Christ, the finished work of Christ on the cross. And that is pretty awesome. When I was, and it was amazing, when I was, I was, I was um, counseling a widow who, who's a, a very, uh, in her older years, and, and she um, had lost her husband like two decades prior. So for 20 years, she's been, she's been without her husband, but she still wore her wedding band. And she was, she was wrestling with some stuff that was more recent in her life. And as she was wrestling with the, the things, I, I couldn't, I was so distracted by this because uh, it was just so poignant that when, when we were talking, whenever she would bring up one of these things that was just, just so difficult for her to carry alone, and when the tears would start to well up in her eyes and she would start to realize, I'm about to fall apart, she would take a deep breath and she would, extend her hand and she would look back down onto her wedding band. And then she would proceed further with, with the ability to move on. Why? Because what she was recalling in that moment was the fact that she wasn't always dealing with these issues alone. That she had her husband by her side and, and that was something that was significant for her. And even though he's been gone now 20 years, the memory of that relationship still gave her strength and she was able to push forward. Communion is that multiplied tenfold. Because what we're recognizing when we're coming back and looking at what Christ did for us, giving us his body, his blood, establishing a new covenant with us, my life is centered on him. No matter what I'm going through, I am not alone. I am not alone. 
This is the opportunity to renew those vows, to recenter ourselves on Christ. This is a vehicle to do that. Why do we take communion? To gather as God's forever family and to recenter ourselves on Christ. But that's not all. If you see the rest of the Articles of Faith, it continues on saying that it is a time of commemoration and proclamation of his death until he returns and should be preceded by solemn self-examination. We also believe that the elements of bread and wine are symbolic of the body and blood of Christ. All right, let's go ahead and pause there for a second because this might be different from the church you grew up in. Um, there, there was, um, Roman Catholicism was the only church for a huge amount of time of Christian history. And, and, and within that time frame, one, one of the things that, that people were instructed and maybe you were instructed as you grew up is, hey, Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. And so, logically, it makes sense that something takes place in the Eucharist, in the, in the process of the Lord's Supper, where that bread ceases to be simply bread, and the cup of juice or wine ceases to be simply juice or wine, but becomes Christ, literally Christ's blood. During the Reformation, there were, there were guys that said, I just, that doesn't seem congruent with Scripture, because Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood. He was raising bread in a cup. But that was before he even shed his blood or, or, or had his body crucified. And so clearly Jesus was being figurative in what he was talking about. And so we should equally take it symbolically. And so there was guys like this guy named Zwingli. It was like, it's all symbolism. It's all, the bread is just bread. The cup is just a cup of, of juice or wine. That's all it is. We're just symbolically taking part in acknowledging that this is Jesus' body and his blood. And as a church, we definitely skew more towards Zwingli on that one. But there's this other guy named Martin Luther. He's the guy who kicked off the Reformation. And Martin Luther said, I, I come from a Roman Catholic backdrop. I don't see this reality in Scripture, but I also don't think that it's so cold and stale that it's simply symbolic because there's something about taking this that not the, the bread does not literally become his body and the, the juice his blood. However, there's something that is significantly sacred about this moment where Christ's presence is uniquely experienced in this. And I would say that I'm, I'm, I'm more in Luther's camp on that. I, I think that there's something about when we act, do not take communion flippantly. Like this is, well, it's just a symbol. It's more than that. Anticipate that it's more than that. That Christ wants to uniquely meet with you in this time of you taking the bread and taking the cup. This is a sacred moment experience it as such. Now, now, one of the other things that you see is that we have bread and we have bread, but we, in our articles of faith, it says wine. And some of you have picked up on the fact that we actually don't have wine. Some of you have noticed this, right? Maybe one or two are like, oh, really? I had no idea. Yes. Now, you may have come from a church, evangelical, Catholic, Protestants, a bunch of people differ on this. In fact, for the majority of Christian history, all that was served for the Lord's Supper was wine. I mean, that was because you couldn't preserve grape juice. Not until the 1800s, late 1800s, could you preserve grape juice. And so it was always wine. And there are churches that celebrate to this day with wine. And there's churches that, that celebrate, they don't celebrate with wine, they celebrate with grape juice. And so one of the reasons why, again, in 1979, you've got this dude, um, Vernon Johnson, who's a Lutheran, who celebrates the Lord's Supper with wine. And you have an independent Baptist who celebrates uh, communion with grape juice, like you should, because it's godly to have an alcoholic grape juice, even though it's not in the Bible. Now, here's the thing. 
that argument was won out clearly by Dick Seavers, who was, was the Baptist. Um, and the reason that the Baptists and others came to the point of saying, we need to find a different alternative than, than wine, is because certainly by the 1800s, people were recognizing that science had done a lot of great things in the world of alcohol. It made it more potent. So the wine that you had in the 1800s was more potent than previous years because the science was able to get the yeast to survive a little bit longer and make it a little bit a stronger drink. So dudes were coming home from work and getting wasted after work, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, all of a sudden they roll into church and like, let's keep the party going because they had alcohol there too. And pastors really messed up by this. They're like, man, we're seeing families get torn up. We're seeing job relationships get torn up. Husbands and wives are getting torn up by this. We got to figure out a, a solution. And this one pastor, this Methodist Episcopal guy back in 1869 came up with a way to pasteurize grape juice. And he, f- he said, I want to provide an, uh, something that's not going to be a handicap to those who struggle. Like, it's cool for people to have, to have wine, celebrate in moderation, but within this, let's not let this be something that's going to stumble, cause someone to like, get tripped up if they've got an issue with alcohol. And so he came up with a way to pasteurize grape juice. And you know this guy. This is dead serious. Every time you go to Jewel, you see his name. Because at Jewel, you'll go down the, the aisle and you'll see Welch's grape juice. This is Pastor Welch. And he came up with a way to have unfermented wine, that's what he called it, so that there wouldn't be an obstacle. Now, our tradition is to serve unfermented, unfermented wine, grape juice, that we get from Jewel. Um, but honestly, whether our church celebrated with Pastor Welch's example or Pastor Napa Valley's example, the key is not, in, there's nothing magical in the juice or the wine itself. The key importance is the symbol. The, our tradition is this way, and that's why. But, but the key importance is, in fact, the symbol. The bread symbolizes his perfect life and the body in which he actually bore our sin on the cross. The wine represents his blood, which was shed for the remissions of our sins and also a sign of the new covenant of grace. So why do we take communion? We take it because, I mean, because this, this is what we do when we gather together as believers. This is something that's important for us. And, 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 and the reason that we gather together, and we, as a church, we celebrate this once a month. Now, many of you come from traditions where it's every single week, right? Right? And so there's churches, Catholic, Christian, uh, denominational churches, pretty much most, most of Christianity, that, that's kind of their, their vibe is, is this is a every week. Because um, again, Paul says, take this, proclaiming Christ's death until Jesus has returned. Has he returned yet? No, well, we're gathering together, let's take it. And so it's every week. Sometimes it's midweek as well. And there's other churches, like the church we partner with down in St. Lucia, and they say, this is so important. We know churches that celebrate it every week, and it becomes white noise to them. It's just a ritual to them. For us, we want this to be, this is so important. We want this to be set apart. And so we only celebrate communion as a body of believers once or twice a year, and it's sacred. It's so important. As a church, as Manuka Bible Church, we look at ourselves as saying, that's too infrequent. It's, so, it's, it's infrequent enough to be forgotten. But we also don't want it to become white noise where it's every single week and it just becomes another ritual. We want it to be something that's important and, and, and set apart. Now, of these three models, which is the right model, the biblical model? Manuka Bible churches, that's right. Exactly. No, 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 no. All three of these are being obedient to Scripture. The reason that we have this as our tradition is because of that. Now, could we go this way? Absolutely. Why? Because it's a tradition. And that is equally, or the other way. But the reason that we do it once a month is so that it is frequent enough that it's not forgotten, and it's not so infrequent, or it's not frequent, so frequent that it becomes something that just becomes white noise. 
So when we come together, though, the, the, what we're, what, what a lot of times people ask me, what is it we're supposed to be thinking about when we're taking communion? And that actually is the third answer to why we take it. It's to rekindle our life in Christ. Because again, Paul's instruction is to acknowledge the fact of what Christ accomplished, to take this right is to remember what Jesus has done. Now, that brings us actually into the fact that, that communion is not just a, a Christian thing. What we're celebrating is a, communion, uh, is a Christian tradition, but it's rooted again in that Last Supper, which was, it had four cups involved. In, in a Passover Seder, the Last Supper, which what Jesus and his disciples celebrated, the first cup is the cup of sanctification. That, that as Jews, they would have their glass of wine and they would drink the cup of sanctification. Sanctification means to separate or set apart. And, and that what they're celebrating is this. God, we were enslaved in Egypt, but God set us apart from our captors. He liberated us. We drink to our sanctification, our separation from bondage. Then the next cup is a cup of praise. Why am I raising a cup of praise? Because God keeps his promises. Man, I'm in a world where I can't trust anyone. I can't trust my boss. I can't trust my kids. I can't trust my spouse. I can't trust myself, but I can trust my God. I can trust my God because he is faithful. I'm raising a glass of praise. That was the second cup. Then they go through more parts of the Passover Seder and they get to the third cup. And this third cup is the important one. This is the cup of redemption. This is the cup that we drink every time we are celebrating communion, the third cup of the Passover Seder. This is the cup that we catch up to with Jesus in the Gospels when he says, we see this. In Matthew 26, Matthew records, then he took a cup. This is all the way into the, already into the, the Passover Seder. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is saying at the cup of redemption, redemption is another word to buy, of buying back. And so in the Passover Seder, redemption was this. We were the property of Egypt. We were the property of the Pharaoh, but God redeemed us. He bought us back. He bought us back so we could be his kids. And so the cup of redemption was celebrating that. Jesus, at that point in the Passover Seder, says, this is my blood. What's bringing you redemption? What's authoring your redemption from sin? My sacrifice. I'm buying you back. You're enslaved to your sins, but I want you to be my kids again, so I'm buying you back. I'm paying the cost with my own life. And folks, this is the cup that we're hanging out on until he returns. How do we know that? Because Jesus in the Passover Seder never gets to the fourth cup. He skips it. They sing a hymn and they leave the Passover Seder prematurely. Why would he skip the fourth cup? The fourth cup is the cup of the kingdom. Every one of these cups is prophetic. Jesus in the cross was authoring our sanctification, our separation from sin. We praise him because he is faithful to do that. He authored our buying back, the redemption of our souls through his own body and blood in Jesus. But he had not yet brought his kingdom in finality. This was future. This was down the road. And so for Jesus, he has this disciple stop at the cup of redemption. What gives us a clue to that? The next verse. I tell you, I will not drink after the third cup. I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink of it with you in my Father's kingdom. One day, I'm gonna return. I'm gonna bring you back home and things will be finalized then. But until then, you are drinking. You're lingering on the cup of redemption. 
One of the other amazing things that we see within Jesus is just all the things that Jesus was communicating in that Last Supper was this. Um, sometimes there's different names for these cups in a Passover Seder. And sometimes the third and fourth cup get, get uh, renamed the cup of betrothal and the cup of the wedding. So just like uh, betrothal, is like um, a, a young guy saying, this woman is so valuable to me. I'm willing to spend whatever it takes for her dad to be cool with her to come into my family. I'm redeeming her. I'm bringing her into my family. And that's followed up by the wedding, the cup of the wedding. And, and there was a practice that young, you know, 15 or 16-year-old guys would get betrothed to their, their wife-to-be when, and their wife was like 13 or 14. So they're 15 or 16, she's 13 or 14. And the, and you, and the practice was the, the young 15 or 16-year-old Jewish kid Super nervous, super awkward. He's walking over to her house with the cup of betrothal. And he's like, okay, please, just, I don't, oh, man. Okay, just don't, don't. And everyone's, his grandma's long like, go, Eddie. And he's like, okay, 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 okay. Don't mess up, don't mess up, don't mess up. Don't drop, don't drop. He gets to the door and he, he knocks on the door and the girl's there. And he's like, and he would like hand over the cup of betrothal. And if she received it, they're engaged but she didn't have to. She could go, it's not you, it's me. <laughs> and then he'd walk back humiliated and grandma's like, Eddie, you idiot! And he'd feel awful. But if she said yes, then all of a sudden she did something. She would light a candle that's in her window and a little oil lamp she'd put in her window. That was an indication that she was engaged. And so everyone in the community would know she's waiting. She's waiting for her groom to come back. And he had to come back, but he had to do something first. That groom would take, I mean, she, he no longer has that. He's booking it back to his house because you built your house as a, as a new groom with, for your new family on your dad's property. And so he'd go back and he'd start building the house. He couldn't get married until the house was finished. And so he's making all these different rooms and stuff, and he's, or he's just, whatever he does. But the dad was the one who had to sign off and say, okay, that's good enough. You can go get married. And so he's just like building it together. And he's like, dad, dad, I'm ready to get married. And dad's like, this is a teepee. You can't, no, you got to make this into a house. Okay. And so he's like, keep on building rooms and stuff. He keeps on going, dad, it's ready. Son, this is a death trap. Build it better. It's not finished. And he'd go back and he'd build, 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 or add rooms or whatever. And then the father would say, son, it's done. And that, that kid would go, <gasps> and he'd, get, he'd sprint on back down to the house. Granny's coming like, yay! And they'd get on down to the room, and, and they get to her house, and she can extinguish that, that candle, and she joins the procession back to the father's house where they have the wedding feast and drink from the cup of the wedding. Why is this so cool? Because Jesus said when his disciples wanted to know when he was going to return, that's not for you to know. Only the father knows when I will be returning. But in my father's house, there are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. If it wasn't so, I would have told you. And Jesus is reassuring his disciples, I, am, I have done something. I will do something on the cross that is going to redeem you. And you can live in that understanding that your sins are forgiven, but that's not it. Whenever you drink of this cup, you're thinking about the fact that this groom will return for his bride. Amen? The cup of the kingdom. No matter what you're going through, one day, he will return. He will make all things new. And you know what's amazing to me? That communion isn't just, it doesn't stay here. It doesn't stop here. Or it shouldn't at least. What happens as we're taking the bread and the cup should be something that launches us out. And every single time we leave this room and we step into the obedience of Christ, we live the righteous life that he's called us into 
Every time we extend forgiveness and grace and patience to people who don't deserve it this Thanksgiving. Every time we actually share our faith with someone who doesn't know it. You know what we're doing? We're sipping from the cup of the kingdom. The kingdom is being built all around us. And it's finality? No, he's gonna come and finish it. But we're sipping from the fourth cup. But until then, we get to drink the third. Celebrating what Christ has accomplished, that he's accomplished it for this family of people and that we have a savior who will return to us one day. Amen? What we're gonna do now is I'd like to have those who are gonna be handing or um, giving out the Lord's Supper, the elements of the bread and the cup. If you could come forward, please. And while they're coming forward, I wanna challenge you in this time frame to do something and do something that maybe it's been a while that you haven't done. Again, communion is a reset. It's an opportunity for us to re-surrender ourselves. This is a time of evaluation. So I wanna challenge you in this time to evaluate between now and the last time you took communion, where is your heart? Is it surrendered to Christ? Or are you still your makeshift Messiah? Are your accolades and your grades and your performance at work still your makeshift Messiah? Is your relationship or your relational status still your makeshift Messiah? Who is the savior of your life? And if you're not a believer, this is an opportunity to surrender your life to him, put your trust in his finished work on the cross for you that he accomplished out of love. And if you are a believer, let this be a reset. Experience the refreshing of meeting with Christ for you. Do that and in just a moment, the bread will be passed to your row. And once again, one of the beauties that we see in communion as it's being passed is that you're always getting something that is being extended from someone else. You're not just holding on to this by yourself. This is coming to you from another brother or sister in Christ. Spend some moments in reflection and in a moment we'll take the bread together.